On Cinema Smorgasbord presents How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, we look at the life and film career of the always unique character actor Steve Buscemi. So let's begin. Welcome to How Do You Do, Fellow Kids. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the hardcore legend Liam O'Donnell. Today we are going to be looking at Abel Ferrara's crime film, King of New York, from the year 1990. How are you doing today, Liam? You know what, Doug? I've been I've been better, but right. I guess I've been worse. You know? Okay. So. Tell me about one of the times you've been worse. Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> Probably when I was in the midst of moving. That was pretty hellish. That was a terrible situation. You mean during a pandemic? <laughs> yeah, that was that was pretty horrifying. But yeah, no, it's just. Uh, you know, uh, for for whatever reason, we've had two sort of big figures in uh, in hardcore from Texas pass away under you know surprise circumstances, and I just feel bad for everybody who knew them and loved them. And you know, it's it, it's weird when people you only kind of know pass and, and you're sad, but it's also like uh, I idealized their work. Like they were sure. both R- Riley mm-hmm. Gale and and, and uh, Wade were two guys whose whose music I really loved and so uh I, I actually got to meet Riley and he was a, he was a chill dude but you know I more think about the people who knew them knew them because they're both from not the same scene one is from Dallas the other is from Austin but that Texas scene even across such a big state is very connected and the mm-hmm. idea that like you would lose two people in such a short amount of time is like devastating to me I just really worry about all those folks it's uh I, I... That's obviously not a scene that I have a lot of knowledge about. I, I certainly recognize that these are important people within it. I've seen lots of people in my very social medias uh, really mourning and really having difficulty because this is a time period where you have that mix of kind of quote unquote expected deaths in a sense that people who are getting up, you know, there's a lot of Hollywood f- folks who have passed away this year and it's like, it's very sad, but you know, they're in their late seventies or early eighties or older. And you're like, well, you know, some, that is just what happens as people get older. But man, when you see people in their forties and fifties and, and who have so much kind of creative life left in them passing away, it, it's a, it's a real kind of mind. I was going to say mind fuck. I don't know if we should say mind fuck, but, but this is a year of mind fucks, I think. Yeah, it's just hard to um, to be in a world that has so much larger tragedy and mm-hmm. then to also negotiate more personal tragedies. Right. I just imagine right now if you're friends with both of these uh, dudes, let alone if you're, you know, I mean, with Chadwick Boseman passing and just mm-hmm. other, you know what I mean? It just seems like there's a lot to handle at a time where, like, I don't hear a lot of people stoked on the future. Like, it's really hard to be excited. You know, like, for me, doing this podcast with you is like has to become like a global hope in my mind because there's not a lot else that I have a lot of hope in. So I'm putting a lot of pressure on you and Steve Buscemi right now. Uh, Well, we're going to try to stay optimistic or as as optimistic as we can considering the subject matter we're going to be talking about. Well, I have some subject matter in this opening segment, Liam, that's pretty optimistic. It's future and current Steve Buscemi news. We don't have a Steve Buscemi news break theme or anything like that, but I did want to bring up a Steve Buscemi, he's doing new stuff. And we love it. That's it. Well, you have the you've got the tone and and the lyrics, and I I'll just add some sick beats to that, and we'll have a great <laughs> <laughs> uh, some Steve Buscemi news over the last few weeks. Uh, the biggest news, boy, Liam, you'll be excited about that, is about the movie Hubie Halloween. Do you know about this movie? Have you heard about this movie, Liam? <laughs> oh, I watched the trailer. I saw people retweet the trailer, 
And I thought they were joking when they're like, I actually want to see this. And I thought, Adam Sandler movie? Get out of my face. Mm-hmm. And then so I finally watched it out of morbid curiosity. And I thought, I'm going to watch that. Like, I, I, you know, I don't know if I'm excited to watch it, but I'm interested enough that I'm going to watch it. I think I'm pretty stoked on it. Well, you're a big fan of The Sandman anyway, right? Uh, are we talking about Uncut Gems? Then, yeah, I am a big fan of The Sandman. We're talking about Punch Drunk Love. We're talking about eh, Billy Madison. Billy Madison's pretty good. Happy Gilmore's gonna, pretty good. I, I, I can st- I'll stump for Billy Madison. That That's that's one that I'm high on still. I feel like it's not as rewarding to, to revisit Happy Gilmore. And so Hubie Halloween is an upcoming Netflix movie featuring, starring Adam Sandler. And it is Halloween-themed, which, hey, that, where we like Halloween, right, Liam? Halloween's great, love right? It. Love it. We love Halloween. I am concerned about this movie because it is from the director of Little Nicky, which might be... My least favorite Adam Sandler movie. I know there are a lot of people. That's who, only because you haven't watched any newer ones. That's true. I have not watched any of the newer, you know, ones that he's made for Netflix or anything like that. But Little Nicky, I remember sitting down at the time. I listened to Adam Sandler CDs. I was pretty, you know, reasonably high. I was not like turned against Adam Sandler as a comedic performer or anything like that. I sat down with Little Nicky and I was like, I was expecting, I was like, time to laugh, Doug. This is going to be a good time. And I could not have hated it more. It just was interminable. Yeah, from the the Popeye's chicken, uh, uh, the obvious advertising within it, to the humor that to me just didn't work at all. I mean, it was just a nightmare to watch. Maybe if I was to watch it now, it has been a very long time. Maybe I'd have a, a better appreciation for it. But uh, my no, opinion on Adam Sandler has just fallen more and more since then. And that movie, of course, Little Nicky had horror themes as well. I did watch the trailer. I I think it could be okay. I, I'm trying to be cautiously optimistic. That's it. We're going to be cautiously optimistic on yeah. how do you do, fellow kids. And I'm going to say I will probably watch Hubie Halloween as long as the reviews when it comes out are not like, this is the worst goddamn thing on the fucking planet. I think I'm just going to have to watch it before the reviews. I just like, because I, mm. I just want to be excited about a fun Halloween thing that, that has this. I think the cast is people that I want to have good feelings about. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just going to give it a chance. And is there a good chance I'm not going to like it? Yeah. Yeah. But I just, I, I don't know. I just, I've had a lot of things lately that I thought I was excited for. And then I read reviews and I'm like, ah, that's exactly what I was worried about. And then I never watched it. So I'm going to give myself the freedom to be disappointed by this one. There is something to that. I I feel the same way where I get really hyped for something. And then those initial reviews are, if they don't even have to be negative. It could be just that, oh, this is a minor disappointment. And it's just like, well, all the wind out of my, you know, it just deflates everything. Also, I don't think Rob Schneider is in this one. And that is helpful for me uh, in regards to how I might enjoy it. Actually, I really do like the cast generally. And, you know, my Rudolph was in it. And I, Love You know Rudolph. what? Yeah, maybe I will. Maybe I will, Liam. Um Oh, and one, of course, the supporting performers in it is Steve Buscemi, who actually appears in the trailer. Uh, I don't know if he's going to have a significant part, probably more significant than his part in King of New York. Uh, but I do like the Steve Buscemi-Adam Sandler relationship. It's funny. I don't think that Steve Buscemi has uh, – that his career is hurt at all with his connection to all of these Adam Sandler movies. If anything, it just kind of adds to his mystique as a bizarre character actor. Well, and it's a reminder that Adam Sandler hasn't always been – 
uh, this mega star that kind of seems like without any sort of moral center and just takes money wherever he can get it. <laughs> a joke, by the way, he makes about himself. So it is what it is. But Steve Buscemi is like a reminder like, oh, Adam Sandler used to have connections to other kind of art communities. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, I kind of like that. And I kind of like the loyalty between them. Um, and the idea that Buscemi, I mean, this is one of the things for me about Steve Buscemi is like he's done his fair share of art films. But like when it comes to comedy, I don't get the sense there's an elitist bone in his body that he's just like, I'm just going to do this because I think it's funny. And and I kind of love that. Another bit of recent Steve Buscemi news is on The Daily Show, uh, the comedic political commentary show, uh, they did a kind of fake trailer for the Joe Biden campaign, uh, which presents him not as a strong candidate, but instead that he is acceptable under the circumstances. It, basically, the comedic bent of it, let me explain it to you, <laughs> is that uh, Joe Biden is not very progressive. Uh, he is not particularly a great candidate, but the very fact that he is not Donald Trump is a good enough reason to support him. Um, it's it's presented, again, as as uh, a bit of a joke, but also serious in the sense that the the general message is, you should vote for Joe Biden. Now we're not we're not here to take a political stance. I know that you're a, a Trump head, Liam, and Stop. I don't want to get you to talk at length about that. But did you find this a, a comedically effective piece of uh, work here? I did actually, and uh, you know, and Steve Buscemi is a great person to be voicing it because he can do the serious voice and then go into the "Come on, what do you? Yeah, ah, what exactly. About? He's perfect for that. I will say. Um, the only part that's regrettable is when they're like, he's only had one major scandal. I'm like, mm, yeah, I except know for the right? rape thing. Yeah. I, the... I mean, let's be clear. We're voting for two rapists. Like that is the, you know, rapist A or rapist B. And you're really, you know, choosing between fascist rapist and probably not a fascist rapist. That's really the difference between these two people. Although I am willing to accept that on the scale of sexual assault, it's pretty clear that Trump is like, uh, a multiple offender like it's pretty clear that he should be in jail whereas with with biden we so far only have one very credible in my mind accusation and so i you know if if you think there is such a scale of evil it's pretty clear that one is worse than the other uh but the idea that they left that out completely and they're like, we're being real honest about Biden. It's like, well, you're not, though. You're leaving out something that's very important and that could end up meaning a lot to people. And by leaving it out, you're less effective. If they could have found a way to address it, still making the point that Biden is a better option than Trump, maybe that would actually convince some people. But leaving it out just feels like a weak. You're doing that because, you know, it, it kind of disqualifies him a little bit. I think over the last five years or so, I mean, yeah, I think five years is a good a good kind of range. The my view of political comedy on TV and its effectiveness, I, I've gotten very cynical about it. And the Daily right. Show was a big part of that. And I'm not saying that the Daily Show is a bad show, or even that it's no. any worse yeah. uh, with Trevor Noah than it was with John Stewart. Uh, I just I remember that time period, and I did I do think it fostered a sort of um, a th- a, it fostered a sort of perspective on politics that I don't think was very realistic. Uh, that the rally that they had to restore sanity, I think, in retrospect, was an embarrassment. Like it's kind of like a real joke. I'm not saying that any that I don't watch any of these uh, these comedians. I think some of them are very good. Uh, but it's to me, I think I didn't really respond well to this because it just reminded me of how cynical I am about American politics and really politics in general right now. 
And being reminded again and again that there isn't a great option. <laughs> it's, it, it's something that because I'm on social media, because I'm on Twitter a lot, I don't need a reminder of that. The jokes that are in this segment, even though, you know, it's it's fun to see them all together and with the production values and things like that, it just feels like a joke that I've been hearing for like the last six months. See, I feel you on that. I, I, I uh, but I, I just find Steve Buscemi so <laughs> endearing. Endearing, yeah. That kind of that kind of sold the thing to me. I will say, I heard, a, I've heard a lot of people make the same sort of commentary you are about the political humor on TV. In my brain, there is a chasm, a deep fucking gulf between the Daily Show or some other versions of that, and actually what like John Oliver and uh, Hassan Minhaj were doing. It's funny that you shows... mentioned that because when I think about like the good and bad, that's the divide right now. It's so strange to think that John Oliver came from the Daily Show and was, you know, uh, right. To a great extent, kind of just aping that style, but I think his show is so much better and well, so much. Uh, those two shows are informative. This is the difference, yeah. right? There's a difference between I'm commenting on the news and I'm making fun of it, and I get yeah. that. And and for a lot of people, for a long time, the Daily Show was how they found out about the news mm-hmm. prior to social media being useful for finding about the news. And I and I that's kind of sad, but it's true, and that's fine. So I think Patriot Act and um, uh, Last Week Tonight. What those two shows have done is try to keep the humor, but actually inform you about things and not try as hard to be current. I mean, I think last week tonight can be very helpful in how current it is uh, in the beginning segment, but you can tell how deeply fucking researched those later segments are. And the same with Patriot Act. And to me, now, if if this kind of humor really grates your nerves, then I don't think the, either of these shows are going to win you over. But what sets them apart is you f- you learn something from these shows. I mean, maybe not if you are the most knowledgeable person in the world, but most Americans learn more about their political process and burning issues from these shows than they knew at all or could have ever learned just from like looking at Twitter. So like that to me serves a function. Whereas like just making fun of your opposition seemed really radical back in the day, but it should be pretty clear now. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't do yeah. anything. Mm-hmm. And they, a lot of these shows are not really getting into that much news anymore. When I've tried to watch them, I've been like, I know about all this. You know, I honestly find a show like Jesus and Marrow much better because they're not trying to pretend like they have some deep insight. They're just funny. And it's like, oh, okay, this is funny. And it's got funny stuff on it that it, like I actually like enjoy. Um, I haven't found those other shows that funny. Um, and, and again, John Oliver and uh, Hassan Minhaj are both very funny dudes. That wasn't why I watched the show. I love that they're funny. I like their jokes. I love the way John Oliver throws money around to like make a funny joke. Like That's all great. But it's the information I got from those shows that I actually found a lot more useful. And, 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 and the episodes where they covered stuff I already knew about were my least favorite episodes. It's when yeah, they covered absolutely. something I didn't know fucking shit about that those shows really shined. My problem with both of those shows, which I enjoy very much, are the same problem that I have with a lot of political comedy that I still watch. Uh, which is A, that it feels like it's ex- exclusively speaking to people who already, if they are not aware of it, they do care. I'm not saying that people are watching and don't care, but that the people who most need to hear it will never hear it. And B, that I feel like the the personalities involved, and particularly the writers for those shows, are more left in real life than they're allowed to be on the show. 
Like that that they're just on the verge of saying something that would be kind of like radical to say on television, but because of their Netflix or HBO masters that they still have to kind of, you know, it's still going to come down to everybody's got to vote as opposed to, you know, everybody's got to take to the streets, that sort of thing. I mean, I would say both those shows, I think, push that. And I think um, the vibe I got actually uh, on Patriot Act is I think that was actually a real representation of his political perspective. Yeah. I, don't, I think actually what the show ended up doing over the three seasons it was on is make him a little more left. I think he started the show thinking like, eh, you know, yeah, I'm on the left, I guess, but I'm not that mm-hmm. political. And by the end, I'm like, he's going to start telling people to burn <laughs> shit down. Like, that's where he's going. <laughs> like, I think that's the vibe. There was that turning point, right, where the Netflix uh, edited the part from his, or edited his show off of what was it, the Saudi Arabian uh, Netflix, yes, yes. and it kind of felt like it's like, well, this is this is your moment. How are you going to push against people that are pushing against you? And he did it, and I think he really stepped up. And ever since then, I mean, I I still I absolutely think that his show got canceled, not because people weren't watching it, but because Netflix was like, this guy is is willing to push too hard against it. I think that was part of it. I think also. They were worried that the appeal of the show was some of the audience interaction. So once mm. he went to having to record alone, I mean, there was a, a feeling there was a feeling that the show wasn't as good. And I, I, I and by the way, I disagree. I love the audience interaction. I, I wanted it back really bad, but I didn't need it. I think the show worked on its own, and uh, I don't think they just I don't think they believed in him as a as a host. Liam, we're not here to talk about politics. That's you true, jerk. <laughs> I can't help it, Doug. We're here to talk about Steve Buscemi and specifically his momentous appearance <laughs> in Abel Ferrara's King of New York from the year 1990. I think we should take a break. When we return, we're going to talk about that movie. We're going to talk about some of the controversial aspects of it. We're going to talk about how you've had a bit of pushback on your opinion on it, Liam. Lots of interesting uh, topics and subject matter. Let's talk about King of New York right after this. Frank White is a free man. How come you never came to see me? Who wanted to see you in a cage, man? He served his time. What can we expect from the reformed Frank White? Only the mayor. He paid his debt. Go someplace where you can stay out of trouble. But some things don't change. From here on, nothing goes down unless I'm involved. No blackjack, no dope deals, no nothing. You're waiting years for this. You're up to white, forget it. I'm gonna make you and your friends disappear long before that. Are you arresting me? Frank's Park Avenue attorney can get him out in 10 minutes. 10 minutes later! I feel no remorse. I got a quarter million dollar contract on anyone involved in this case. The cops tried to stop him their way. I'm not your problem, I'm just a businessman. Now they'll have to do it. His way. There's only one way to get Frank. Christopher Walken, King of New York. You expected to get away with killing all these people? I never killed anybody that didn't deserve it. A drug kingpin is released from prison and seeks to take total control of the criminal underworld in order to give back to the community. That's a simplistic view of the King of New York, 
from the 1990, and I need to stop saying the thing. That's a simplistic view of King of New York from the year 1990, directed, of course, by Abel Ferrara, a very controversial director, also the director of Driller Killer, Miss 45, uh, New Rose Hotel, of course, Bad Lieutenant. And uh, Pasolini, the Pasolini biopic from a few years back that's quite hard to track down. Uh, written by his regular collaborator, Nicholas St. John, who also did um, a number of those movies, including Miss 45 and Driller Killer. Uh, and this is a movie with a loaded cast. We say that a lot about the movies that we talk about on this show, but it includes Christopher Walken in the lead as Frank White. Uh, Larry Fishburne, amazing as uh, Jimmy Jump in the movie. David Caruso, Wesley Snipes. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito, who's... Uh, I love watching movies where Giancarlo Esposito shows up because we all know how good he is now, but he was so good for years and years in smaller parts, and it's great to know that he found the success that he was kind of due after years and years of kind of, uh, of, of um, you know, in the trenches, so to speak. And, of course, Steve Buscemi as the character of Test Tube. Uh, this was a movie that, when it came out, boy, audiences didn't know what the fucking thing. <laughs> the response was very... Um, violent in a lot of ways. Maybe violent is too strong of a word, but the, at the very least, you know, there were st- stories of audience walkouts, of people accusing the the cast and the director of being sick because of this being such a violent movie, and it's a very coarse movie. There's a lot of the F word in this movie, Liam. Uh, a movie that it's it's such a strange thing to look back upon because watching it now, it's not that it's not controversial in terms of the subject matter, but it doesn't seem much more harsh in terms of the content in it than most of the crime movies that you would see in the 1990s, including ones that became very mainstream. You can certainly see the DNA, whatever whatever Abel Ferrara thinks of him, you can certainly see the DNA of someone like Quentin Tarantino that would come out of the uh, atmosphere that would allow for something like King of New York. Uh, and King of New York did lead directly into Bad Lieutenant, which might be, I guess, Abel Ferrara's most we- well-known movie. I think that's fairly safe to say. Uh, and it's certainly his most well-respected movie. But uh, King of New York, I don't know if it's as well-respected as Bad Lieutenant. But for me, when I, you know, I really loved it back in the 90s. I haven't revisited it for many years. So to watch it again, I didn't know how I was going to respond. I'll talk about how I responded in just a minute. But first, Liam, what do you think of King of New York? I mean, it's worth naming up front that uh, this cycle of 90s crime films, which really King of New York is the herald of, yeah. um, was super influential to me. Like, like uh, if you if you take King of New York and you smush it together with New Jack City, with um, Deep Cover, with even a fucking uh, Fatal Beauty, with uh, all number of films that came out around this time, let alone... Some of the works of uh, one Mr. John Singleton that we talked about in one of our Absolutely. other shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, these were big movies to a lot of people who were of a certain age in the 90s. And so I have a certain amount of nostalgia for this film. Uh, so it's sometimes it's hard for me to be totally critical about it. That sure. being said, I still think it mostly works. I think it's a film that is not about real life. There, This is not a commentary on actual crime and actual criminals. And in fact, there's a certain amount of cleaning up going on. You know, there's a certain amount of, uh, yeah, there's the grit and the grime of New York in the movie, but there's a lot of stuff that is not quite as bad that, you know, in reality, the actual war that was going on in the streets around crack was worse than what was happening in this movie. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, and so, uh, in a way, this is not a commentary on actual crime in New York. This is a commentary on gangster movies. Yeah. This is Ferrara and his writing partner spending, according to Ferrara, five years trying to think about 
both uh, the crime movies that had become popular in the 70s and 80s, but also the classic crime films that they had grown up on from, you know, the the back in the day, like 30s, 40s, and 50s, and trying to amalgamate all that into a modern context. Uh, and, and, and really trying to recreate for him uh, a version of this like psycho criminal mastermind that had become such a icon uh, of the time. And, and also it, it is, and, and we'll talk about this a little later. If you listen to the commentary, this is also him responding to what was actually made available to him. This was an independent film. Sure. It was privately financed. He just had a dinner in Italy and got all the money he needed to make the movie. And so it was a lot of money for him. And that's why the movie looks a lot glossier than his other films. But he also had a way different cast than what he had planned for. You know, he had, it, he, he went from, uh, what he had written as an older Italian, uh, you know, white guy second in command to the unbridled hip hop influenced uh, force that is Lawrence Fishburne in this movie. You know, Larry Fishburne in this film yeah. uh, literally was like, "I'm playing, I'm I'm not playing a real gangster," is what he said. I'm playing mm-hmm. the character in the rap songs. He's like he's he's even dressed when he's introduced like a member of like Run DMC, right? I mean, he's yeah, almost or an ex- Slick Rick. He looks exactly or Slick, like yeah, Slick Rick. Yeah, exactly, right? Like Slick Rick. Yeah. And, and and yeah, he's like a caricature and that's fine yeah. because the movie is a isn't like you said, it's about the the classic gangster movies, it's about the modern view of gangster movies and yeah. then trying to fit that on top of real life issues going on in 1990 New York. Now, whether you think that those two things are incompatible or not, that's that is obviously what's going on here. This is not a reality. Right. It's like a heightened view of what of what movies see reality as. And I think it's important to realize too, this is also about fun. This is about they suddenly have more money than they really knew what to fucking do with. And so they're going to make a movie that reflects that and it was I mean, you know, the 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 image uh, that people have in this movie is that this is his sort of like breakout movie when it comes to like him suddenly getting money and being able to do whatever. But it was also him trying to a certain kind of filmmaking that was, uh, he describes it in the commentary as fascistic. This right. is him trying to be a fascist director where he controls everything. He controls every element. It's not run and gun. It's not handheld. It's actually like an intense sense of control for him and his aesthetic. Now, compared to other directors, I mean, he's no fucking Kubrick here. You know, he's 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 a lot looser than some other directors. But for him, this was the most control he ever tried to exert on a film. Right. And by the way, he found it to be torturous. He hated it. <laughs> this was a lot of work for him. And so, like watching it, I love it. But I can kind of, I've always kind of sensed, like compared to his other films, a bit of like a rigidity to this movie. And so, hearing him talk about it and acknowledge it was really informative for me. But I, I think this movie's great. I think Lawrence Fitchburn is great in it. I think Christopher Walken is great in it. I, in fact, I think everyone, every character who's memorable in the movie is memorable because they do something impressive and interesting. Yeah. Um, I like the idea of his warped morality. I like the idea of the reality of the... What this reminds me of is... This is a weird reference, but go with me on this, Doug. Recently, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts is Behind the Bastards, and they were talking about Carlos the Jackal. If you've seen the movie about Carlos or if you've heard anything about Carlos the Jackal, it's easy to just be like, how did this dude become this like charismatic terrorist leader? He just seems like a monster. But 
it's a lot easier to understand someone like Carlos Jackal if you remember that while he's shooting up airports or or you know bombing a mall or whatever else he was doing the US government was sponsoring coups and assassinations all across the world that that's like what the world was you know right. what i mean in the same way as crazy and and purposely crazy abel Ferrara is really clear that he does not idolize frank white frank white is not meant to be a hero but frank white makes more sense when you see how terrible the police are as well that there's like you know there's almost no redemption from the cop side either that the that the game is offset from the beginning and that is like awesome and powerful to me It, it makes the movie work in a way where you don't have to think frank white is cool but you do have to acknowledge that frank white is trying to do something different even if he's motivated by self-delusion yeah it's it's it takes a perspective that i think is is kind of a response from 19 to 1970s style um kind of crime movies and thriller movies where i think at some point because the 1950s view of crime was that it had to be punished because of the rules that were in place at the time. When those laws or rules became relaxed in the 1970s, it was a lot more common for filmmakers to make criminals the good guys. Like, like kind of explicitly the good guys. And even if they were shown be doing terrible things, because it was kind of a revolutionary idea. It's like, hey, they can be bad guys but still have kind of a soul. But then this is a movie that kind of responds to both sides of it, which is that, well, in his community... Christopher Watkins' character is sort of, you know, he he has motivations that are positive, but don't don't mistake him for a good guy. He is a violent psychopath a lot of the fucking time, and he employs a lot of violent psychopaths to kill discriminately, not indiscriminately. He's doing it for a very specific purpose, but, I mean, we see him fueled by anger. We see him yeah. fueled by drugs. I mean, this is not a guy that, that you're going to mistake for someone who... Um, who is going to be kind of genial, like a Godfather's character? You know, the you know the the someone you'd bring to your wedding or something like that. He is almost like a force of nature. And even though he has those moments where he's out on the balcony and he's looking over the city, and you you try to get inside of his head, he's not he's not the type of character where you want the handcuffs taken off of him so he can do whatever he wants because it's not going to make the world a better place. Just like with the police, when they decide to cross the boundaries of what they're allowed to do by law, it just completely fucks up in their face. Well, and it's worth noting, this is a really important detail that I don't think people think about all the time. The big cake version of the hospital is actually the only hospital that Frank ever built. So like, whatever he says, and I don't think he's being disingenuous, but the idea that the film... Uh, makes him a hero which is one of the criticisms that was leveled at at the time it's like well you never see him actually do any good things like he's really only good at murdering other criminals you know now there's a sense in which he can take out like it's it's important to keep in mind that the police focus on him meanwhile every person he murders is a bad dude and so to what extent is the are the police focusing on him just because he's an element of chaos and they don't like chaos. It's not about justice or they would have gotten any one of these motherfuckers and, and, and put them in jail. It's, it's about the fact that he's disrupting the system, yeah. but he's, he's Batman still a taken bad to dude. his bad Batman taken to his logical extreme. Exactly. Right? Just- <laughs> I really think that's true. I mean, I don't think Abel Farrar would have checked name checked Batman, but he is very much saying like this dude is crazy, but he has a point and that's part of the point of the movie. Right. Now, this was, as you mentioned already, this kind of kicked off a lot of the gangster movies that would um, 
that would kind of dominate a lot of the 1990s. And, and, and I'm talking about kind of the wider world of gangster movies, mainstream gangster movies, but also a lot of the, the black gangster movies that we would see, you know, kind of evolving out of Boys in the Hood, New Jack City, a lot of the movies that would come after. They would take a lot of influence from King of New York as well. Why did you think, you know, it seemed like the rest of the decade, those movies got tons of critical acclaim that uh, when movies like Reservoir Dogs came out, they thought they were thought of as almost revolutionary. Why didn't a lot of those kudos and accolades start with King of New York, which I think came out to a very mixed reaction? Well, I mean, it, it it's a weird thing. Uh, you know, my initial thing would just be to say that, like, I think this movie has more of a of a moral ambiguity, you know, that there's more of an immoral core to this film because you do end up sort of struggling with who Frank White is and with the system and all that. So maybe that's part of it. I will say, based now having listened to the commentary that Abel Ferrara has on the disc, there there were also some business decisions made. I mean, the the as far as he's concerned, this movie never came out. You know, it played at New York Film Fest and then like it had barely a release. And he was, you know, there there are practical reasons for that. They straight up thought if we mass release this movie, there will be violence in the theaters. Like it, it was. And it's really funny on the commentary because he names the racism of it. Like, well, they thought if we release this movie, then it would be like a lot of black audiences and that would bring violence to the theater. And like then, you know, just a couple of years later, New Jack City comes out and makes all the money in the world. And then he stops on the commentary and he goes, of course, there were a lot of shootings at New Jack City <laughs> screenings. <laughs> so the guy, the guy's like, so they were right. And he's like, yeah, but they, you know, they didn't know they were right. They just said it because they were racist. <laughs> And, and, and you know, part of it's the marketing of the movie, right? They marketed this movie. Just just go and look for any poster for this movie. This movie is marketed like fucking uh, Goodfellas, uh, The Godfather, whatever. White movies. And it was written that way. Let's be clear. That was Abel Ferrara's intention. What he made, though, was not that. He made a fucking hip-hop film. And so when they were bringing the movie out, he pushed for them to market it as he, in his own words, like a G movie. They should have marketed it like a G movie. That they kept telling them, it's a G, he's the OG, man. You need, a, you need to market this to the hip-hop crowd. And they wouldn't do it. And again, according to him, now this is just his perspective, because they didn't want black audiences. They really thought that was a waste of their time. They then, wanted him to change the music, right? They wanted him to change the whole soundtrack to... Oh, yeah. To, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, ridiculous, right? To be fair, he did change some of the soundtrack because the original soundtrack, he said, was jazz. It was actually the horn players from the E Street Band did all the original music. He took that out and put in the Vivaldi, but he also put in hip-hop because he knew that was part of what the movie was, but they wouldn't market it, and in his opinion, because they didn't want that audience, and they didn't think it would make money. And then again, what, two years later, three years later, New Jack City comes out and destroys box offices and makes a million... I mean, isn't this the history of all black art? Is like, no one thinks it'll make money, then it makes all the money, and then people only invest in it for a little while and then they move on back to white dominated art. That's just how it always is. And so, uh, you know, I think he, even though this wasn't his intention, he made a film that was very important to the hip hop community. I mean, there's a song about the, this movie, you know, notoriously the notorious B I G whenever he would stay at a hotel, he would sign in as Frank white. And that was his like, you know, uh, uh, you know, hiding name, you know, his like, uh, whatever, alias that was his alias you know so i i just think this movie was very influential for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons uh, not the least of which because it, it shows 
a version of New York that is stylized, but also represents the violence that had become familiar to a lot of people. Now, you did a podcast yourself, Liam, on Cinepunks about Bad Lieutenant and King of New York, and the, the pu- there was a little bit of pushback in regards to the racial politics of this movie. There are some people who say this is kind of a white saviorish movie, that the fact that Frank White is the guy who's kind of in charge of all these young black men, that, that it's a bad look, that it suggests that, um, that he has a level of control, that they, they have no uh, autonomy. Uh, there's also, I think, a counterpoint to that, which is that this is a movie that is reflective of a um, of a reality, which is that the the people in control often are white, and they are putting people to task. And when you have that scene on the subway where the those uh, young black men try to rob Frank White, and his response isn't to be violent and isn't to get angry, but is to you know offer them a job, that that is more realistic of of what happens in reality than you know the the violent incidents that you would normally see in an action movie. Yeah, I mean, I think that. Um... On that episode, you listened to it, and I don't even remember all the different things I did, but I, I tried to defend the movie based upon that reality, and also just on the idea that, that like, I think part of Ferrara's view that comes across in the movie is that the future is more integrated than what is the, the facts on the street. So an organization like the mob that is built on racism is, like, not acceptable in this you know modern era or whatever and that that's the appeal of frank white is that he wants he doesn't want there to be people who are getting fat he he wants everyone to make money he wants it to be a little bit more of an egalitarian sort of thing which is a bit of a illusion in a way right it it covers up some of his obvious uh evil but but it's still you know his conviction having listened to the commentary there's also just a a bunch of realities here that aren't obvious to us because we weren't part of the filmmaking process, which is a Walken was the only guy that in this movie that Abel Farrar didn't know. He's the, if you picture like, I'm going to get a do a movie and I'm going to get a bunch of my friends and people I know people I want to work with, but we need someone who we think is like the cool name that we don't know that like, he's not famous. Like Walken wasn't like a moneymaker, but he's someone that right. we wanted to work with that we I idolize a little yeah, bit people kind of forget that in 1990 christopher walken isn't the same christopher walken that he no. would be in 1995 no but everyone knew him that's what he said is so interesting is that he wasn't a money maker but everyone all the actors knew him in right. fact you know famously there's a the, the scene where he's taken by the police is one of the first scenes they did and walken was like these guys are not roughing me up enough you got to tell them to really like put it in you know because they're afraid of me because they respect me and so he like you know Abel Farrar like makes fun of him he's like you know he's complaining you're, this, you're disrespecting him you gotta show him you gotta get rough whatever whatever and in that scene he hurts his shoulder so bad he had to go to rehab for two <laughs> years <laughs> but all, all that is to say there's that reality is Walken is the main character because he was like the draw for them to do it then the other reality is that like I, I mentioned earlier the the character that Fishburne plays was written for a white guy. So like, you know, one of the things that is true is people talk about this movie has a lot of improvisation in it. That's not really true. Like they they kept to the script a lot more than people realize. The improvisation comes around more of the taking up space, the emotional reality. And that was really true for Lawrence Fishburne because he had to take the script and like in his mind, make it black, make it hip hop, like make it like, Uh, his character like he was bringing his character to life and so like we might look at this and go well it's weird this relationship whatever but like 
that's what Ferrara thought. He didn't want to ca- cast uh, uh, Lawrence Fishburne. He was looking for another white guy. And Lawrence Fishburne's like, nah, man, let me do it. I'm right. going to be great. I'm mm-hmm. going to kill this part. I'm going to be. And he's and in the commentary, he's like, he's right. He owns this movie. Like, he is, like, more, almost more of a star than Walken is. Like, oh, he is? Yeah. I came, I came out of this movie. Yeah. All it did for me, you know, not all it did, but one of the things it really did was reinforce that Lawrence Fishburne, especially thinking, you know, on on one of our other podcasts, we talked about uh, Boys in the Hood recently. That came out the year after this. Yes. The character that he plays in this is like so different than I like, you know, of course it's going to, you know, these are actors, but I mean, this is like a night and day type performance uh, difference. Just an example of an actor who is just, you know, this is Cowboy Carl from a few years ago on the Pee Wee Herman show. This is a guy who has so much many chops when it comes to acting. I think uh, Lawrence Fishburne is a very underrated and undervalued performer in a lot of ways. <clears throat> One of the things that people notice in the film is like everyone's wearing black, you know? And it's easy to be like, oh, well, there's some deeper commentary. No, 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 no. Ferrara, everyone's wearing black because it makes it easier for him. There's less colors to deal with. There's less color correction to worry about. And because him and his friends all wore black because they just found it easier to match their clothes. So it's like personal and it's easy. That's it. That's all that's going on in his brain. That's the whole fucking thing. And so I think with this, it's like, you know, he didn't stop. He wasn't thinking about the justice idea of all these people working for Christopher Walken. And... The, the point is Christopher Walken's ego anyway. So, like, if it's like, well, I don't know, Walken seems kind of like an asshole. Well, yeah, that's what the movie's about, man. Like, whatever, <laughs> you know? Uh, wh- one thing I do want to bring up, because it's uh, something mentioned in a lot of, of kind of modern reviews, is how the plot mirrors the plot in some way of Nosferatu, which is actually shown on screen in the movie to make that link kind of explicit. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? About the idea that that the way that that Frank's return to reality uh, kind of mirrors that of a vampire that he's almost always shown at night, that he's very pale and vampiric throughout it. How intentional do you think that was? Is that mentioned on the commentary at all? It's a little self-referential there. Farrar has talked a lot about how his greatest influence is F.W. Murnau. He he considers F.W. like he really says his filmmaking is a combination of his idol F.W. Murnau and his one of his best friends Michael Mann, and that that's that's how he makes movies. Now is that real? I don't fucking know. I don't know enough about that to even be able to say. But sure. that's what that's his self-claim. So that's why I think there's a lot of Nosferatu in this. I think also, um, yeah, I do think there's some intention to it in that. Nosferatu is a, uh, or the film, the the vampire Nosferatu, uh, 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 Olaf, right? Graf, Graf, or Orlock, right? Orlock, Orlock. there you go. Yeah, uh, he's a, you know, he's a specter of death, but he's also a, a man out of time. You know, like that's the focus. The way Nosferatu adapts Dracula is, he's a scary death guy, yeah, but he also is like the he doesn't understand. He's adjusting to the world around him in a certain amount. You know what I mean? And so like. That's what's interesting to me about Frank White is that, like, regardless of how he sees himself, he is death. Like, he, they even make it so we don't we don't know how long he has been in prison. I don't right. think they ever explicitly say it. The suggestion is that it's just been a really, really long time. But you know, in, in the, the com- in the commentary, Ferraris says eight years. He's been in jail eight for eight years, and so he's been in jail for eight years. And uh, drugs have only gotten worse. And they're you know, in reality, they're worse than they even are in the movie. And uh, but but this is what I think is so interesting, right? He's a crime lord in some way, right? But you never see 
Frank do any crime other than kill people. As far right. as we can tell, the only thing Frank knows how to do is murder people or direct people to other people to murder people. He doesn't personally commit any other crimes in the film. Like, in a sense, all he is is a specter of death. He's a specter of the past. He's, like, haunting people who want to move on without him. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's all these, like, weird sort of vampiric qualities to him. But as far as Ferrara acknowledging that on the commentary, no. There is no conversation on the commentary of any larger themes. It, like, kind of hurts me because I think there's a lot going on in this film. And there's a lot of themes going on. But Ferrara is kind of like a real down-to-earth guy who doesn't seem to care a lot about meta anything. <laughs> so as far as he's concerned, he made an awesome gangster movie that has some really great shots. I mean, he spends most of the commentary being like, look at this shot, look at this shot. Yeah, yeah, that's fucking filmmaking right there. It's yeah. so strange to think about that they spent five years on a script, right? That That those themes are obviously in there, but that he doesn't want to acknowledge or talk about them. I mean, he, you know, he spent five years on a script, spent almost a year making it, and then after it played the film fest, it took almost two years for it to get out to the audience. Right. So, like, that's crazy. Like, it's a lot of stuff. But for him, what they were most influenced by was just the gangster movies. But, like, again, if you watch Drill, uh, I said this before, but, you know, if you watch Driller Killer, to me, Driller Killer is so clearly about impotence like it's just right. there's so mm-hmm. much phallic imagery or you know miss 45 it's more than just a rape revenge movie it's so much more than that and i think that's probably true of ferrara overall that a lot of his movies you know bad lieutenant for him is i don't think uh, a movie about his catholicism but if you can watch that movie and think anything else, you're a crazy person. Like, you know, like I just uh, I just think that's part of who he is as a filmmaker is that a lot of the larger themes that we might obsess with as the audience are under the surface for him. Right. And, and he might be able to acknowledge them obliquely or, and sometimes directly, but it's not what he was thinking about at the time. I think as a director what he's thinking about is a lot more practical than we realize. He's he's focused on the practicality of the movie making. Liam, I want to talk about Steve Buscemi in the movie King of New York from the year 1990. Uh, his character, Test Tube, is introduced in one of the first scenes. Probably, boy, it might be my favorite scene in the entire movie. <laughs> it's very good. It's really good. It, it's really uh, an important scene for... Uh, defining what Lawrence Fishburne's character is all about. I love the interplay between him and the the drug dealer and how the scene uh, kind of erupts in violence. But Test Tube is a character who's basically there to test the quality of the drugs. And uh, we see him, and he is very Steve Buscemi-ish in that that sequence. Um, He's also the only, I think, the only white member of this gang, except for Christopher Walken. And aside from this sequence, I don't think he ever appears in the movie... Again, and that's very unusual and very strange, and it's not something you really think about until after the movie's over. It's probably more strange in retrospect because Steve Buscemi in 1990 was, it wasn't unusual for him to show up in one scene. I think he does in Miller's Crossing, or he only shows up in a couple of moments in that movie as well. It's kind of like a usual Steve Buscemi type thing, just that, you know, he always brings something to that role. He's always kind of memorable, but it is kind of strange that uh, this person who's introduced as kind of a core member of this gang never shows up again. Hey, if you were going to make King of New York 2, at least Test Tube seemed to have survived, so maybe he could be the star of it. What did you think of Steve Buscemi in King of New York? 
I mean, I've always thought he seems somewhat out of place, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if he had shown up in more of the movie, that could have been a fun like character detail that he's yeah. part of like a weird member. I mean, you know, not that there's, you know, if you count um, Frank White's lawyer girlfriend or one of his uh, very attractive bodyguards, there are a few other white people in That's his true. group. And, and he gets more, right? Because some of the Italian dudes quit and join him you know memorably the guy with the tattoos who i'm convinced is in a hardcore band but i could never figure out if that's true or not um those guys join the gang too so it's not like the whole gang is brown i guess what i should say is lawrence fishburne's most uh, immediate entourage that he goes around with tend to be almost all black right and that's part of the thing so 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 before listening to the commentary, I was all like, yeah, Steve Buscemi seems miscast. Then Ferrara, the commentary, can't fucking leave it alone. Steve Buscemi doesn't belong in the movie. He's ridiculous. <laughs> the only compliment he had for Steve Buscemi is the scene where they shoot. And he's like, oh, look at look at Steve. It, it's looked like he's even seen a gun before, let alone held one. That That's interesting. I didn't realize that. He actually does pretty good in that scene. <laughs> and But so the big scene, he is in one more scene in the movie, Doug. The, the dancing scene. I was I was wondering. Now, you, I couldn't remember if he was there or not. You might not notice him in that scene because the thing they kept having to stop and redo is he kept pushing Steve further. It's his favorite story, I think, about the movie is I kept telling Buscemi, move back, move, move back, move behind him. Yeah, no, no. Stand a little further back. Because every time they would start to do the scene and he would just look at Buscemi, he would start laughing, like audibly laughing so that you could <laughs> hear him on the soundtrack of the movie. And they'd have to cut because Abel Ferrar couldn't stop laughing Stu Buscemi's dumbass face. I'm not joking. This is like a, a legitimate thing. So much so that Steve Buscemi was like, maybe I shouldn't be in this scene. You want me to leave? And he's like, I can't. You're in the scene. Like, you're part of the movie. I can't just cut you out. Like, you you got to be there, man. You were with him. You got to be there. But just stand a little further back. Stand a little further back. And I got to agree. He seems like a, like a sore thumb for the little bit that he's in the movie. I love his attempt. Like, he tries to be like in a little bit, but I, I don't know. I, the thing is, he only seems like a sore thumb in retrospect, because at the time that he shows up, you don't know what kind of movie this is necessarily going to be. When he's there, it does feel more like a kind of a right, a more traditional 1990s crime movie, because Steve Buscemi shows up in a lot of those, and, and, and you know, and he's very Steve Buscemi in a lot of those roles. And so when he's here, it's like, oh, so that's what this movie's going to be about. And then he just kind of vanishes. I thought he was going to show up in the big shootout at that club that they're in uh, near the end of the movie, the one where the cops attack them, uh, that he would show up just in the background to get shot and killed. <laughs> so it's so strange when he kind of just vanishes. I think he was in a little more, not much, but a little more of the movie, and they cut it out, you know, right. um, just because it was just extra stuff or whatever. But yeah, I, I just don't think Ferrara really believed him in the in the movie i think he was cast <laughs> and then once they started filming farrar was like why did i cast this guy and you know he he's they're friends he likes them you know like it's not like a personal thing like they're buddies but it, it you know I, I don't know i i personally i don't mind him in the movie i think he he could have done more but i get that like at least in that scene where everyone is looking real t- like the whole point is that they're kind of menacing frank before frank breaks attention sure they all look menacing Except for Steve, he just doesn't look menacing at all. He just can't do it. <laughs> it. I mean, I have to say, I going back to it, I think I remembered him being in more of the movie than he actually was. That said, I think he's good. I think he's believable sure, as sure. someone who 
doesn't really belong, but because his role is so specific, right? Because his job is specifically, you know, even with the name test tube to be the one who's testing the drugs that maybe they would go outside their usual scope of who would be in the gang because he's able to do this. But it is strange that he manages to live throughout the movie when, you know, somewhat notoriously, almost everyone dies in this movie. Well, yeah. And I, I, I don't know. I, the, the suggestion might be he is dead. I mean, we just yeah, don't exactly, know. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> yeah, he just died off screen because he didn't care that much. I just think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just think, like, uh, it would be, I, I just, it's not about his performance. It's about the movie ends up being dark. It has humor, some humor in it, but it ends up being so dark that I just don't think his vibe works for Frank's gang. Right. You know, yeah. I just, it just doesn't fly for me. Um, but you know, whatever. I don't mind him in it either. And that scene is great. It's another weird detail about that scene, besides the fact that uh, Farrar is very impressed with the way Steve Buscemi holds a gun, <laughs> is that uh, multiple of the Colombian gentlemen are wearing sunglasses in the scene. Right. Uh, that's because they're Filipino. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so they had to. So like Farrar's like, yeah, I guess if you're tough, you wear sunglasses. But really, no one wears sunglasses inside. That's like a dumb thing for a song, man. That's not a real thing. But uh, you know, they're Filipino, and I didn't want people to know that. <laughs> I love that even with more resources than he ever had on a movie that it was just like, hey, I'm still Abel Ferrara. That's how I'm going to make this movie. Um, well, so I, I think the, the thing he said that I think is worth noting is just because you get a bunch of money up front doesn't mean people don't come in and make you waste money on stu- their stupid ideas. Right. So his feeling is, I mean, that's sort of the story of the ending of the movie. Everything that happens after the subway with Frank mm-hmm. is when they are almost two weeks over date and they're out of budget right and so the reason that's not a tracking shot or not a uh, dolly shot or not a crate you know the reason it has all the handheld stuff that we're more familiar with his earlier movies is because they were out of money and so that's all they could do that's the ending they could do with the time and budget they had left and realizing that is so crazy to me because i love the ending of this movie i think yeah, it's too. amazing and him just being like yeah we couldn't it's fine it's this is all we could do it's crazy <laughs> i love the idea at the same time that people are going to be pushing him to not have christopher walken die so they could potentially do a sequel for it when this the i mean to me from the opening of the movie this movie is all about how this character has to die at the end, right? I mean, yeah. not even not even in terms of like a, a moral judgment type way, but just that, you know, he's a character that is obsessed with the amount of time that he has left on this earth and what he can accomplish. So, of course, he's going to die at the end. So, I mean, it's yeah. it, it, it's kind of, I think, it, it, in terms of whatever tonal difficulties this movie has, and I don't think it has as many that as cer- certain people think, I do think that it's pitch perfect at the very end. It's kind of a strange thing looking back at it. Steve Buscemi, I think, is very good in this movie. He just isn't necessarily good for this movie. And it's a great movie and a really good performance, but it isn't a great Steve Buscemi movie because he is not an essential part of it. And you could replace him with just about any nervy actor from that time period. That said, boy, when you watch this movie... You still remember that Steve Buscemi was in it. You're never going to forget him, which I guess is one of the reasons that he managed to get that kind of mainstream success later on throughout the decade. Because he's a guy who shows up in a movie, and whether it be how he looks, whether it be the energy he brings to it, you never forget when you see Steve Buscemi in a movie. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt. And, and you know, I think that uh, in retrospect, I wish he was in more of this movie, but I get why it, it just doesn't 
his vibe just doesn't fit what Farrar was going for. It's so strange too to think that like two of the most New York people you can come up with are Abel Ferrara and Steve Buscemi, <laughs> and that that when put together they don't necessarily mesh like you like you would think they would. Um, I think I do think that uh, Ferrara is the kind of guy that he really connects with certain actors, and he you know, you know right now he's he's been working with Willem Dafoe pretty consistently over the past, you know, 10 plus years. Um, and he worked with Christopher Walken again and again in the 1990s as well. But uh, I would have thought that it would be a natural mix. But, you know, both of them managed to find their way pretty well. Well, and it's I will say, again, there's parts of the commentary that are kind of upsetting, actually. But uh, one of the things to hear is how much respect he had for, you know, whether it's Caruso, whether it's Wesley Snipes, whatever right. it is, you know, just the love he has for so many of these actors. And even Steve Buscemi, he thinks Steve Buscemi is kind of miscast, but he clearly loves the guy, you know, right. and, and you get the feeling they probably knew each other at least a little bit, you know. So I just it, it that that was one of the more endearing parts of the whole thing, you know, but uh, he also part of his whole thing about this movie was. To, and the response to it wasn't the disrespect for his art. It was the disrespect for the actors. You know, right. the second screening at the New York Film Fest, only uh, Lawrence Fishburne and uh, the one dude Nick uh, was there, and uh, and they were booed. the 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 movie ended, and the whole crowd booed booed them. And Farrar went in and started like cursing at the audience <laughs> and freaking the fuck out again because he felt like these actors put in amazing work. I mean, even yeah. like you know the very first press conference they ever did for the film and it was wesley snipes first press conference ever ever and at that press conference the first question was your movie is morally reprehensible will you at least donate all the money it makes to a drug rehab program abel ferrer seems like the kind of guy who is kind of fiercely loyal uh but he also is a very kind of Difficult personality. Anyone who who actually has watched an interview with him, notoriously, he was on Conan O'Brien and was kind of prickly at the time. He's just a very unique character and a very unique director, and one that I actually have a lot of time for, even even when his films don't appeal to me. He made a, a Pasolini biopic, I think I mentioned it the uh, uh, earlier in the show, and it's I think it's extremely flawed, but it's also fascinating because this is uh, this is Ferrara making a movie about someone who is a real-life person that he obviously has tons of respect and love for, but then trying to make it kind of accurate to a very kind you know, very, someone who had a very messy story, trying to make it accurate and also making it in the style of that person. Boy, I, he is, I think, a fiercely talented director, one that I think will get his due perhaps well after he's no longer with us. Um, and also someone who's kind of worthy of a retrospective because there's so many of his movies that I haven't seen in a long time or haven't seen at all because especially in the last you know 15 years or so, a lot of those movies have kind of fallen under the radar or haven't gotten proper distribution. Yeah, straight up. So what do you think, Liam? Should people see King of New York? Yeah, I think so. I, I'm not offended you think if so? people... <laughs> I, I, I'm not offended if people... You know, we talked about how I, I got some pushback on that Cinebox episode. I'm not offended by that. I get why some people might not love it. But to me, it's great. I think it's just a, a really great film. And I think, you know, if you're looking for a realistic crime film, A, I don't think any crime film is actually realistic, period. But B, this is not that. This is a caricature. This is an over-the-top, extreme thing. And I think... In that sense, it nails it 
perfectly. Uh, you know, there there are one or two parts of it I feel like could be a little different, but overall, I think it's one of the one of the best films for me of this whole decade. Yeah, I th- I mean I. I, I can see the criticisms against it. I don't know if I necessarily agree with them, uh, but I do think that even if you do agree with those criticisms, it's a fascinating movie and one that's well worth revisiting, if only before, for the, the collection of amazing performances on display in it. But I do think that it goes well beyond that as well. It's also kind of a crucial 1990 New York movie in the sense that everything you're seeing, even the visuals are not reflective of any reality. You know, I didn't visit New York myself until like the early 2000s. The New York that's on display in this movie is like a different planet from what I experienced. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a document in time. Liam, with that said, that is King of New York from the year 1990. We, on the next episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, we're going to go back to the 80s, Liam, uh, 1987, with a movie I've actually never heard of before. Called Kiss Daddy Goodnight. Um, I have a review here from Letterboxd by someone named Justin Matthew that says, Gorgeously lit, scuzzy, lo-fi street trash buzzing with a hundred dying fluorescent lights and Uma's angelic man-baiting duplicity. That's Uma Thurman, who is the star of Kiss Daddy Goodnight. At least that's my understanding. Uh, that review, at least, makes me very excited to check it out, even though it's only a three-star review. Liam, on the next episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, Kiss Daddy Goodnight. Any thoughts on this? I, I, the title made me a little hesitant, to be totally honest. I just saw it was Buscemi and Uma Thurman in a movie I had never heard of, and thought this will be great. Now, I think, it's, I think it's noirish, and if you think of it like a like a fifties noir, "Kiss Daddy Goodnight" isn't such a weird title. But from the perspective of twenty twenty, it seems not very marketable as a title. I agree, <laughs> <laughs> but you're excited. I want I want to hear you excite. I am actually very very excited. Great. I love to hear it, Liam. Liam, if people want to check out more episodes of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, or more episodes of the Cinema Smorgasbord podcast, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, they can, of course, uh, find this podcast and many other fine podcasts at cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, as well as a bunch of uh, uh, really great essays and articles and reviews uh, by a number of very talented writers. Uh, If they want to just catch up on the history of this show, they can go to our own website, cinemasmorgasbord.com, or they can find us on Twitter at cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G, I guess they could also follow us personally on Twitter, which seems like a bad idea. But if they want to, they could. Doug, where would they find you on Twitter? I am on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And, of course, you can find you on there as well, Liam, at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. Check out Cinema Smorgasbord at Cinema Smorg, S-M-O-R-G. That's also linked on the Cinema Smorgasbord website, as well as links to all of our variety of ways to check out the podcast. Please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Cool. <laughs> I forgot that then I then transitioned into ending the podcast and I, <laughs> I somehow threw back to you with nothing left to say. <laughs> no, there was something to say. I said cool. Great. Thanks, Liam. Thanks for all the help. Thanks for filling out those uh those those empty spaces, the dead air on the podcast. That's what I'm that, known for. That was King of New York from the year nineteen ninety. We're gonna be back again in just a few weeks with another Steve Buscemi classic. Good night, everybody. Night.
Saturday night and I'm feeling kind of sporty. Went to the bar, caught me a 40. Got kind of high and uh, kind of drunk, so I kicked the ass of this little punk. Forgot my key, you had to ring my bell. My mama came first, he said, who the hell? 